Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Mary C. Lamia, Ph.D. She is a clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst who practices in Marin County, California. Additionally, she is a professor and the faculty chair at the Wright Institute in Berkeley. Her career-long passion is to convey an understanding of emotions to the public, which is exemplified by her writing and media work. Today, we're going to talk about the distress and shame of heartbreak and his link to suicide. Let's hop into the episode with Dr. Mary C. Lamia. I'm excited to have you on, Dr. Lamia, because last time we talked, we talked about grief. We talked about what motivates us getting things done. Uh, but now you've returned to talk about uh, heartbreak uh, and specifically the, the stress and shame of heartbreak. This is yes. really uh, relevant for me. My girlfriend was working for a suicide prevention hotline. And I was surprised when she shared the number of kids who call in and want to end their lives because of a breakup, because of the heartbreak. Talk to me about why heartbreak is so painful. Well, as I, I've mentioned to you once before, you know, um, so much of suicidal behavior has to do with shame. And shame is feels so toxic. It is like a death to the soul. And that's often what leads people to want to hurt themselves or uh, lash out at others or withdraw or just avoid life entirely like by drinking themselves into oblivion. So what happens with, with heartbreak is that those same uh, coping responses that we have to shame tend to occur where we do attack ourselves or attack others or withdraw or avoid in order to just deal with the toxic effects of shame. Because it's very, it's it's so hurtful to have somebody leave it feels as though it's it's such a personal thing and yet it's not really in most cases it's not personal at all it has to do with the other individual and their needs and wants or fears but we can't help but take things personally uh, because that's how we make sense of our, of our world so I'm not surprised that your girlfriend encountered so many people who wanted to hurt themselves based on, on heartbreak. Uh, the disconnection response can be very, very strong. But, yeah. but there's one, I don't know if you want me to go on, but there is one thing about it that's kind of tricky that most people don't realize. What is tricky? Share, please. What's really tricky is that, uh, you know how when, when people uh, break up, they often want to call the other person or contact them or see them or run into them or something. Um, and why is that? I mean, if you end a relationship or if the other person ends a relationship, why is there this urge to seek them out? Well, there is an aspect of the emotion shame that motivates us 
to restore broken bond, to reconnect for relief. And, you know, even in, in little situations where we might experience shame, just minor situations, we kind of want to save face. We want to restore our connection with, with other people uh, and, and make everything okay. But what's interesting is that it, in heartbreak, it doesn't make it okay because you're not going to get back together. Or if you get back together, usually the same thing happens and you break up. So we have this seeking urge, this urge to reconnect. And so people call their exes and they expect maybe they'll get a warm response and they get something cold and they're shamed again. Or they see them at a theater and think they might reconnect. No, it doesn't happen. And if it does happen, um, it's usually temporary, as I said. But we have this urge to make it to reunite. And that yeah. comes from the emotion. Yeah, I definitely am the one who will check their social media. Oh. Uh, it's 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 hard to like, you know, I'll look at old messages, um, you know, and, and I think there's something that's been romanticized about reading old love letters. Yes. Uh, but, you know, nobody writes love letters anymore. Uh, you know, so it's like you, you got to hope Maybe that, love emails. Yeah. Love emails or love texts and, and things like that. But it's interesting. You said that it, it's about re repairing, reconnecting, restoring. I, I think innately and please correct me if I'm wrong. There's something evolutionarily um, uh, at play here in terms of we we don't want to feel ostracized from the the group from humanity it's like if this person who i loved and committed my life to and invested so much in left are, is everybody else going to leave i think there's like almost a catastrophizing that takes place so if i oh, can't boy, you're so right on you're so right on because evolution gave us our emotions for for a purpose and our our memory too uh and emotions motivate us and and in shame, yes, we want to restore because we want to be part of the horde, of the crowd, of the group. We don't want to be ostracized. Absolutely. And so there is this compulsion to seek out the other person. But that's poison, you know, in heartbreak. Not always, but usually it's poison. Because yeah, you get further shamed. Right, because the other person, like you said, is cold. They don't return the phone calls or they end up attacking you um, or they publicly shame you to to kind of keep a distance. And it, it's interesting because on one hand, we have this need to be a part of the group, but we also have this need to stand out from the group, right? Yeah. And so th those two things can be uh, at odds where I want to be a part of, but also I want to stand out. I want to be the special one in the group, but I don't want to be ostracized. I don't want to be thrown out. Right. You know, a, a few weeks ago, a woman said to me, she was, she was just um, obsessed with the idea of what if I run into my ex, what shall I do or say? And she kept going over and over that in her mind. She brought it up in therapy. And I, and all I could say is there's a part of you that wants to run into him. Think about that side. 
You want to run into him. And what are you going to do when you do? And so she figured it out. I mean, she she did want, I mean, she was so angry. But she was just pained and hurt and shamed. But is, yeah. there a, is there a bit of arrogance in there of like, is there also a bit of like, how dare you leave me kind of thing? Think of it that way. Um, maybe so. Maybe so. That's, that would be the attack other response to shame. Mm. Yeah. How dare you leave me? Or how could you do this to me? Yeah. How could you do this to me kind of thing? Or, yeah. So where is that coming from? Like, is that you said that's the attack? Again, part of that's shame? that's a, a coping response to shame. So it's preserving your sense of yourself by attacking the other. And thinking that they were, you know, horrible. Speaking of narcissism um, or arrogance, um, uh, what was I going to say about that? That that um, one one aspect to you know breakups is that a narcissist will almost always blame the other or attack the other. They they will don't usually attack themselves, and if they do, the shame is horrific, really really bad. Um, but when people break up, have you noticed that that they often call their ex a narcissist? Well, he was a narcissist anyway. Everybody has become a narcissist. And that's just attacking the other. You know, they're a narcissist, so good that they're gone, but you sure do miss them. Yeah, it, it's, it's almost like a, a self-preservation technique of like, uh, there was something flawed in them. Uh, although yeah. I was with them for 10 years, but, th but there was something, right. <laughs> something. There and was that's something why flat. they left. It has nothing to do with me. So where's the narcissism? I don't know which person has the narcissism, you know, if it has nothing to do with you, but you know what? Shame is such an important emotion because it does compel us to look deeply inside of ourselves. And if we can just take these moments of shame and sit with them, and look inside ourselves, we can learn something. Because the antidote to the shame of heartbreak is learning. You know, when you think about grief, grief involves intense distress, but it also involves the shame of disconnection. And people who are heartbroken usually don't walk around saying, I'm grieving. But they are. They have intense distress and shame. And it is grief. Yeah, what would that process even look like in terms of looking within? Because I think for the most part, we're not taught how to do that. We really, you know, we're taught to attack, go after, seek, hunt, get what you, you know, but we are often um, sitting with ourselves is a punishment. Go sit in a corner and think about what you've done, right? It's a, it's a punishment. There's, it's not a time for introspection or reflection or connection to ourselves. Uh, so I, I, I think we've kind of trained people to not do that. Like, like, I, like I've done something bad here. You know, um, you bring up an important point, which is what we do with children when they're trying to learn how to read or do math, that we often, in instead of saying, well, just kind of 
sit with it and let's take another look at it and let's get past the obstacle and figure out what you're doing right and wrong. What we do is say, yeah, why does the teacher give these kind of homework problems or, you know, or we, we allow the kid to attack instead of taking a look at him or herself and figuring out what they did wrong. It's not a matter in heartbreak. It's not a matter of just thinking about what you did wrong. It's thinking about what you want. What do I want? And what was really present in this relationship? And it, was it really satisfying me? Or was I hanging in there because I didn't want to look elsewhere? Or I didn't want the trouble of finding a new partner? Or um, it wasn't so bad? You know, what do I want? What do I need? What did this relationship give me that felt good? And what will I want in the, in the next one? Wow. So it, it, introspection. Yeah. To be able to ask yourself the questions so that you can look at it objectively, I, I think, uh, is something that uh, I know that I didn't really learn growing up and something that I'm learning how to do. But I love those questions. What do I want? What do I need? What did it give me? And what do I want in my future relationship? That that way we're reminded that um, it kind of plants that seed of hope of like, oh, this one, you know, is is ended. Um, but, you know, I can there are other six billion people on the planet. But I also love this idea of what you were mentioning earlier of like sitting with sitting with it and then playing with it a little bit and stepping away. You know, I do these uh, New York Times games uh, they have wordle there's a game called connection and um i find some some mornings when i look at it it's quite challenging to figure out what the usually i get it very quickly but other times uh they're more challenging words and i find that if i look at it for a little bit and then go do something else and then come back to it you know i i slowly peel back the layers to get to the solution but oh, I think fascinating. Yeah, but beforehand, you let your mind work for you. Yeah, absolutely. So, but beforehand, I would try to sit and try to figure it all out in one sitting. And I realized the same thing with emotions of like, we sit, we write, we journal, and then we step back and go do something else and then come back to it and then go do something else and come back to it. But we really haven't practiced that in, in, in our daily life. Yes. And, and, and our friends don't help so much either, because if you break it off with somebody or they break up with you, they'll tell you what a louse that person was anyway and how they didn't like them. Well, why didn't they tell you earlier? You know, or they're trying to be supportive and they tell you all the bad things about them and all the good things about you. But that's not really being supportive. Being supportive is. What did you learn about yourself in this relationship that you could take into the future? You know, memory is so amazing and so important because the purpose of memory is to protect us and to help us plan and and for the future and anticipate the future. That's all it is. That's why we have memory. Otherwise, we'd have to relearn things over and over and over again. So whether it's tying our shoes or having a relationship, what do our memories of a relationship tell us you know how do they inform us and to look back on 
all of our relationships and say, are there any common threads? Is there anything new here? Yeah, it's How so interesting. No, I'm sorry, myself. go ahead. It, it, to, to look at it and, and think about, well, who am I? Who is this telling me I am? And who do I want to become? And by the way, you know, when you ask the question, who am I? After a breakup, people tend to focus on the, their self-definition based on their relationship. And our self-definition is not only in relation to others, it's in relation to a lot of people, but not just one. And, and things and places and fantasies. Yeah, it's it's powerful you're talking about memory because I just recently read somewhere that, you know, when we're on our cell phones, it prevents us from future thinking, from from visioning ourselves in the future. Oh, and, interesting. And I and I was like, wow, that's fascinating because you know, whatever emotions then that you're stuck in, you know, it kind of triggers that fight, flight, freeze response because your your eyes aren't moving laterally. Um and and that and so that can hinder your memory or keep the whatever memory you you do have, that negative memory on repeat keeps you in that ruminative uh space instead of expanding out and like what I want my future to look like, what are my needs. I, I you know, I find that so many of us and, and i'll just speak for myself like i'm like just becoming aware of what my needs are you know i i spent yeah. a a life of you know being concerned with other people's needs and and wants and, and tending to those that i've, I've kind of like lost that connection with my wants and needs Ooh, and that's i'll have a to send you my thing. book on the white knight syndrome oh yeah please do uh so, so i mean let's talk about that a little bit because i i think that that ties in to heartbreak if if one's identity is wrapped up in saving people being of service to people helping people and then you do that and the person leaves you're yes. like is this you know am i being of service does this mean i'm bad at my job basically this means i'm a bad white knight and there are people who take care of others above themselves and then when they are taking care of their own needs that person leaves because they need to be taken care of and that feels awful uh but that happens a lot so you have to take a look at the relationship and the dynamic and you know is there reciprocity is there mutuality is there a resonance there or is it just one person taking care of another Wow. I've, I've never thought about that. When you start taking care of your own needs, that person leaves. Yes. And, and you know what? I see that with sobriety. When people oh, who wow. are, when, when, you know, someone is, you know, in addiction and then they get clean and all of a sudden they start taking care of themselves and uh, they're not as needy. And all of a sudden they start building a life and flourishing and thriving the other person can't handle it because they they liked being the caretaker and they liked the dynamic of, well, they don't have their stuff together. And it kind of keeps them, prevents them from getting their stuff together also. Yeah. Just like 
when one person starts therapy and the other isn't interested, uh, sometimes that makes a difference too. I mean, when one partner changes, the other has to change. Otherwise, the relationship has a hard time functioning. When you say change, uh, can can you elaborate more on that? Because change can go in either direction, right? Well, just like, like I, you were saying, in terms of if, if somebody has an addictive personality and they're and they're stuck in this cycle of addiction, and all of a sudden it stops, they've changed. How does the other person accommodate that, or accommodate to that if they need to be a rescuer? What would you recommend for that other person? Because I think sometimes the person isn't aware of their patterns. I, I, I would imagine that that person is typically going in a relationship, cleaning the other person up, and then the, the other person leaves, but they're not even aware of that they're the one that then need to evolve to be, uh, to match where the other person is or to, you know, to, to stay in that relationship. And that's when they do exactly what you talked about, where you sit and sit with yourself and you journal or you take a walk. Think about it. Think about who you were in the relationship and who you are otherwise and what you want, what you need, and what it seemed like you wanted and needed in that relationship. Because sometimes it seems when you're taking care of somebody who's, say, needy, uh, you know, you're not you're not thinking that you have a need to be needed. And once it ends, you have an opportunity to look inside and explore that, have a healthier relationship the next time. A need but we tend to repeat to the, yeah. those patterns. It's it's quite challenging to, to break those patterns. And, and I think part of it is we think we have to do this massive uh reboot or transformation and it it sounds like um it's just about baby steps and daily practice uh, you know i have we just bought a house and we have these ants that pop up from time to time and i thought we got rid of them but i, I realized that when you have a house every morning i have to get up and do a perimeter check i have to walk around the entire house to see what spiders have created a web what ants may have surfaced are that you know just to because uh we, we're up on a hill and there uh, there's a bunch of wildlife and, and things of that nature so just making sure that everything is as it was the day before and if i miss a day i mean there's a difference you know and i i think you know the same thing with our mental health is like we have to find a way to do these perimeter checks with ourselves to uh to to see where we are and where we need to go what a beautiful way to put it, because, uh, yeah, it is like that. But we don't generally think about looking at ourselves and saying, what do I need today? What do I need to be? Who am I? What do I want? Besides it's not working. <laughs> besides the journaling and asking ourselves our needs and our wants, um, what, you know, I want to dig a little deeper into that. What are some other ways that people can really peel back their needs and wants because I, I i could see people really having a challenge with that and even separating knowing what the difference is between needs and wants well it's sort of like you said sometimes you have to step away from it all in order for it to come to you 
like taking a walk or distracting yourself in some way. And then somehow it comes together in your mind. Sometimes we need to, to step away from our thinking because if we think too hard, we just we just go down some path. We make inferences that are not correct. And then, you know, we're off down that road. But just letting your mind float every once in a while is good. Either walking, sitting, thinking, you know, not not actively, but just passively, just letting your thoughts come into your head. And where does that go? It sounds terrifying. I always <laughs> want to be plugged in. I need a podcast, an audio book, music. I want to be scrolling. You, you want me to just let my mind go? Well, that's because you're an intellectual <laughs> and you always want to learn, Leo. <laughs> so if you're always focused on learning, of course you're doing that. Yeah, let your mind go. Have some time to do that. Mm, hard to do. That is tough. That is tough. The um the when you are the clients that you work with, what are some of the needs that typically come up for them? What what are people's most common needs? Um probably I want to say I want to say comfort. You know, it's not like romance. I mean, we want that. But what we need is that resonance with another person because we see each other, uh, each other through each other's eyes. And so it's, it's knowing part of yourself through another person. I think we need, I mean, just a hug is so profound when you think about it. Um, Say more about that. A hug is so profound. It is. It. I mean, in in a sensory sense, um, in a comforting sense, just touch is particularly important between people, where we connect. Just connection. You know, we all want some kind of resonance with another. Um, I keep thinking of my my uh, five year old grandson wanted to go on a ferris wheel at golden gate park and i said oh you know you're not it would be a little bit scared to do that and he said i promise i will hug you the whole way and so we went on it and he had his full arms around me the entire time and when we finished he said that wasn't too scary was it <laughs> I said, no not with your arms around me but you know that's kind of a metaphor for how we feel life isn't so scary when someone else's arms are around you. It's so beautiful. It's so true. I read somewhere that said we, we either want to be hugged, heard or helped. Mm, that's a nice one. And I was like, yeah, that's so true. And I think about any time I, I felt a bit heightened or the emotions were too intense. It was one of those three or all of those three. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you talk to people who are, say, deprived of that interpersonal warmth, um, they really feel it. I mean, it feels empty. 
And you could you could be living with somebody and feel deprived of that. That's really tragic. When somebody is capable, but they they can't or won't, you know, give back to you. When a good morning is not met with a good morning back. Painful. Yeah. It's a, it's a, that's heartbreaking. Rejection. Yeah. To be with someone and, and to still feel alone or yes. not seen. But the need is to be with somebody. And it is so strong that people stay. When a person recognizes how fearful they are to be alone, it makes a big difference in their life. If you can, if you can be alone, then you have a choice. You know, you you may want to be with somebody, desire it, but you don't need it. And if you need it, you make choices that may not be best for you. And maybe many people hang on to relationships because of that need, that fear, being alone. What's the difference between uh, being alone and solitude? Uh, you know, one seems to be more rewarding or nourishing. Um, alone just it it um it feels like it feels heavy or empty or painful even well being alone is not the same as being lonely okay you know you could be alone and be quite happy being alone happy being with yourself or doing whatever you're doing being lonely is painful when you're alone and lonely um, that's really painful. And to also be in a group and be lonely, right? Like it's almost like you're at a party and, uh, oh, that's and nobody true. sees you like that, that that's where you're like, wow, this is, uh, and then I, I could see where you could, one could feel like it, there's something wrong with me where I'm around people and I still feel this way. Well, I, I think you really hit it with that word, being seen, because uh, we want others to see us, to look inside of us and um, acknowledge who we are. It's, it's so funny how so much of self-definition comes from other people, but it does. And uh, when, when we're deprived of that, that does feel empty. When others don't see us. Don't we have a part in helping others to see us? Meaning, you know, if we're not doing the homework, if we're not self-reflecting, if we don't know what our wants and needs are, um, if we don't know the parts of us that we want to be seen, it becomes challenging to communicate that with someone else. And I, and I think that's too much pressure to put on somebody to you know, you earlier used that word needy, and I was trying to figure out exactly what that meant because we all have needs. But I, I think needy is like putting the onus on the other person to figure out what your needs are versus being aware of what your needs are and then knowing how to communicate that. Yes, that's exactly it. Mm -hmm. Well put, because... Um, 
we often think others can see inside of us when they can't. And then we feel offended that they didn't talk about something or didn't inquire about something. When we have a responsibility to convey, we have a need for them to hear us or understand us in a particular realm. Yes, it's uh, commuting, communicating with one other people to, to know so that they can see you. Yeah, we can't read minds. I mean, sometimes we could feel it, you know, but <laughs> can't read minds. When someone is going through a breakup, what are like three to five things you would recommend for someone to heal post breakup? And not to say that these are the only things, but to get someone going in the right direction, because so much of how people are taught to cope with breakups is, you know, go, go to the bar, get drunk, go party, go find another girl. Um, you know, it's just these quick band-aids that really don't set us up for a future relationship. Um, and, and, and frankly could just sabotage everything that we've built up to that point. What are, what are some practical things that people, uh, you would recommend for people to do? Well, you know, going to the bar is a real avoidance behavior, a real avoidance response to shame. You know, getting getting high, getting drunk, whatever people do. One person once told me, well, I'm going to the bar where there's all kinds of other people who are trying to get over someone. <laughs> and that's true. It's filled with all kinds of people who are trying to get over somebody. But... The number one thing after a breakup is to recognize that urge to seek the other person, to get them back, and why that is, and, and that it's an as aspect of your emotional life where we want that reconnection. And so our brain is just making us seek it out. So we want to see them. We want to reconnect. We want to call them, but to not act on that urge because it'll just hurt you for the most part, nine times out of 10, probably. Um, so to recognize the need to reconnect is not an actual need on your part. Um, that's not something you definitely have to do. But connecting with somebody else, connecting with others is important. Being around other people is really an antidote. And connecting with them just as as friends we talk about uh, it's an urban legend <laughs> that we have to get over somebody in order to start a relationship again like we need time to ourselves we need time alone in between relationships because that somehow enables us to be uh to have a healthier relationship the next time as though that alone time is what creates that. And that is just not true. Rebound relationships are not necessarily wrong or bad or maladaptive. And so people get accused of having a rebound relationship or wonder if they're the rebound or the other person's the rebound. It doesn't matter. I mean, that just because you found somebody else right away doesn't make them bad. 
And I don't know how that myth came about, but it is a myth. Many people who are in a relationship and then have some terrible heart heartache from a breakup meet somebody else and they can actually say to themselves that it gives them perspective. Oh, maybe the relationship I was in for three years wasn't so great. But they may not have had that perspective unless they moved on. But rebound relationships are not bad. So to know that, that connecting with somebody new is not a bad thing or wrong thing or maladaptive, it could be a very good thing. Perspective is important to have. So another thing is, is you, you don't have to keep your grief of heartbreak silent. I think even today, men tend to do that more than women. They keep it to themselves. So many people are walking around in the silence of grief and heartache. And sometimes sharing what you feel is best. And instead of telling your best friend that the, the person you were with was a, a louse, how about there are certain things I miss about them? And these are the things I miss. Uh, you don't have to make the X bad. Otherwise, you wouldn't have been in it for so long. So what are the good things you miss? And what are the things you want in the next relationship that are similar? What are the things you don't miss? So to take an inventory of, of who you were in that relationship and what you got and what you want. Learn something from it. You know, if we could learn about ourselves from a breakup, the heartache doesn't hurt so much. It's sort of relieving, like we're getting something from this that will help us in the future. Beautiful. It absolutely makes sense. And, and one of the things that stood out to me, uh, because earlier, you know, we were talking about the hug and, um, you know, sometimes you're in a relationship with someone where you still feel a bit lonely because your some of your needs aren't being met, whether it's through touch or, or what have you. And uh, and I realize that that's also the value in having a social support group because I think it's also um, impossible to find someone who can meet all of your needs. And so to, you know, have a, a friend group or a support group or some type of, uh, you know, social outlet that can meet your varying needs. You know, I love to read and discuss books and movies. My girlfriend is not interested in reading, not that she's not interested, but she doesn't read and review and want to talk about books in the way that I do. And so I have friends who do. Um, and, and so I get that fixed, you know, through my, my social outlet. But there are things that I enjoy doing with my girlfriend. So we do those things together. But to expect us to be aligned on everything, I, I think is preposterous. And I think that a lot of part of the heartbreak is we get into these relationships or the pain of the heartbreak. And we make the other, we try to make the other person everything for us. And so now when we break up, I have, I'm left with uh, what feels like nothing. 
because I've, I've tried to make them everything. And that's not fair either. Or if we have an image in our mind of, of a romantic partner and we get into a relationship and find that this person doesn't match that image, it's, it's hurtful. So we have to let people be who they are and see how we feel about them. But then there are just the basics, like uh, how you feel in yourself when you're with that person. And if you can have that sense of peace and joy and um, comfort just being with them, I mean, that's a wonderful thing. But yeah, um, is that a constant is that a constant feeling to to always be at peace with the person you're with or is no. that is that something that no. comes <laughs> <laughs> No, nothing is nothing is always <laughs> nothing is always yeah i love that it should no, be a t-shirt so. nothing is always <laughs> <laughs> Mary Lamia is there any anything yeah. about the the stress and shame of heartbreak that we haven't discussed that you think would be of value to the listeners um Probably to not make yourself a limit, you know, that uh, to not limit yourself in that way. Um, not when you make yourself a limit, you have an obstacle to learning. Uh, when you have, when the self becomes an object of need, when you have so many needs that it gets in the way of taking a look at yourself. Um, or being solely invested in protecting yourself, that gets in the way of learning. Maybe one thing is that we have to accept our vulnerabilities. Sometimes hard to do, to be vulnerable. It, it really is. You know, I've, I'm practicing leading with emotions um, when I'm in distress of saying, you know, stating what I feel. And uh, and and that's a, a whole other exploration of you know in that emotional landscape because now I have to think about how I feel before I just react or you know lash out um, and but that awareness of how I feel I find really helps to dissipate the intensity of of the emotion but it, it takes practice it takes a while you know I um, you know I bought. Um, what was it atlas of the heart and they like list all the different emotions and feelings and and i was like oh languishing i never i mean i never used that word before you know so uh so it really you know for, for the listeners out there it takes work you know this is not there's a lot of strength in being vulnerable though absolutely. isn't there yeah and when you so when you say vulnerable can you define that also how are you defining to vulnerable? Being, to being open to what you feel and Sharing that with others. Hmm. Because uh, sometimes when we feel vulnerable, we're not open to what we feel. I mean, we're blocking it. It's easier to lash out, for example, than it is to say, oh, that, that really gave me a wince, you know, or a shame. Yeah, because we might be embarrassed by how we felt. We might be embarrassed about what came up or, or ashamed of what that might mean. 
um, or, you know, uh, or maybe even afraid of what their reaction or response is going to be from other people. If, if I, you know, it's like the guy who doesn't want to cry in front of his girlfriend, you know, it's like, oh, she sees me crying. She's going to think I'm not a man or tough or like I can't protect her or, you know, what have you. So we walk around just kind of, uh, you know, suppressing, pretending. There was a whole study done by this guy named Morris um, about do do men hurt as much as women do after a breakup? And one would think, well, of course men are human. But again, there's this myth that somehow men can stuff it better than women can. Because in women, we used to see more of the, the outer expression of emotion, where men keep emotion to themselves. So the shame of heartbreak perhaps affects men more than women. That's possible, or just as much. Uh, but women are able to express it where men sometimes can't. And the greatest thing the women's movement ever did was to free men. Say more about that. Enabling men to express themselves and their emotions uh, when when they weren't being attacked, of course. But men have really come out. And it's just so delightful to see over my lifetime just how much more expressive men are. I mean, like you. I mean, you're you're talking about learning and learning about your emotions and learning how to monitor them and and identify them and men didn't used to do that so yeah. much of your emotional life was kept silent as though that was a sign of masculinity to do that you know it's so funny because i went to therapy when i was a kid and well not a kid but i was in college and i, I looking back i wasn't ready i wasn't ready for therapy i i what I needed when I was, I think I was 21 and, you know, I, and I had to go to therapy as part of my master's program. Like, you know, it was that idea of like, you need to know what it feels like to, to be on a couch um, in that position. And I, and I just wasn't ready for it. And at that age, what I really needed was someone I could talk to while doing something. So, you know, it's almost like that that image, you know, you have of playing catch with your dad and it, by playing catch, you start to open up and share about what's going on in school, home, in your head, you know, and all those things or, you know, playing basketball or something and, you know, shooting hoops. Um, that is more, that would have been more in line with what would have helped me to open up, I think, at a, a younger age. But to be sitting across from someone at 21, I just had too much energy for that. You know, <laughs> it just didn't, it didn't make, and plus my the prefrontal cortex wasn't fully online. So what, you want me to do what? I, you know, you're talking to a lizard right now, right? So. I don't think you can mandate therapy, you know? <laughs> and that's exactly what happens when therapy becomes a requirement. Mm. You can't mandate therapy. No. People have to want to be in therapy for a particular reason, or there has to be some motivation to be in it. 
but to mandate it as part of a program or part of drug treatment or part of something, I mean, unless it really clicks with the person, no, it's a waste of time. Yeah, because I almost needed therapy to to cope with the fact that I was just in therapy. <laughs> I was like, I need somebody to talk to about what you know what was happening, and and um, so I think that was the piece that was missing. That that would have been maybe that would have been helpful was to have a space to process that versus yeah, just going to therapy to see what it feels like. Well, this feels horrible. It feels horrible when you're forced yeah. to do a thing. Yeah. Yeah, and it could have been the wrong therapist too. Yeah. <laughs> and people want that's another thing people don't realize is that if you have a heartbreak and you go and see a therapist, make sure it's the right therapist for you that you feel that resonance, you feel that connection because it may not be all therapists are not alike. No. No. They should all be going to you actually, Leo. Yeah, that's right. thrivewithleo.com. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, where can they find you, Dr. Lamia? Best place to find me is on my website, marylamia.com. Fantastic. Last two questions. I always imagine that there's someone listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them? Sit with your shame. Think about what you've learned. Think about what you want in the future. Killing yourself is is not a solution long term, of course, um, but it's a lashing out at yourself rather than the other person or rather than withdrawing or avoiding. Don't attack yourself. Just sit with your shame because it will go away. Love that. Don't attack yourself. Sit with yourself. I like, yeah, I like the alliteration. And then last question, what are you looking forward to in the next 24 hours? Oh, geez. The next 24 hours are filled with work. Uh, at least uh, the next 10. <laughs> uh, the next 24 hours, I might be looking forward to going to sleep. Going oh. to sleep just feels good, doesn't it? Sometimes I you've love it. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, I yeah. love it. I savor it. I sleep on my back with my little sleep mask and the blackout <laughs> curtains. Oh my gosh. It is I and it's so funny because I, I when I in my childhood I I spent so much so much time fighting sleep and I was like, this is the best thing in the world. Sleep. But it's you know. And if uh, you don't sleep well, that's that's the number one way to feel good is to have a sleep schedule that's consistent. Yes. And uh, it helps you process your emotions absolutely uh thank you dr lamia thank you listeners for tuning in remember this podcast is not a substitute for calling to get help call the 988 or any of the other 800 numbers you can chat talk text you can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly let's get to tomorrow together thank you so much dr lamia thank you leo